Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Three Squares. I'm Charlie Arnott with the Center for Food Integrity and Look East. I've dedicated my career to keeping food trustworthy. This is Susan Schwally, president of the Food and Beverage Practice at the MPD Group. I'm fascinated by why people eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, founder of Malachite Strategy and Research. And I help CPG and food service companies and their teams develop long-term strategy and innovation. And we are the Three Squares, dishing on the food industry. So really interesting time to have the, today's episode of, of Three Squares because earnings reports are out and we're beginning to see the impact of inflation. So guys, as we think about, you know, what's going on in, in the food and beverage industry just over the last week or so, we're really beginning to see some fallout from inflation and supply chain as things begin to kind of coalesce. And we're seeing that now in earnings with Walmart's most recent earnings report uh, because of, of inflation on food and the higher cost of fuel. Consumers are cutting back on some of the consumables. They're going to have to write down more uh, hardwares or soft goods or clothing. I think primarily is what they said they were going to have to continue to discount even more. And then uh, the proliferation of of last mile delivery services during the pandemic seems to be a short-lived phenomenon or at least a somewhat short-lived phenomenon. And Kevin, you actually predicted that. Yeah. You know, don't want to pat myself too much on the back about it because I I thought that the the kind of all the signals were there. I mean, rising price of gas and all that. But even before that, I mean, you saw it was very, it's very difficult to make the delivery model profitable because sending out individual cars to people's houses is really, uh, really expensive. And, you know, delivering a banana to one person in one, one block, that's not going to cut it. And not at five bucks a gallon. Yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, GoPuff was doing it in a very, you know, mostly urbanly dense populations, but even then, it's it's uh, it's gonna be tough for any of them. Who do you see as winners coming out of this, Kevin? Susan, what do you see? I mean, and then at the same time, the supply chain has come back, or even in some case, things that were on ships are held up are coming in late, and um, they're really they're really getting crushed in several instances with uh, inventory. So you know that product's not moving; they got to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do expect in a lot of those durable categories that we'll see promotions return, whereas in food, that's not so much the case. Yeah, not good. So good time to buy. That air fryer. Yeah, I think Walmart, Walmart and Target, though, I think are the ones that are. So, Charlie, your question of like, you know, who's going to win, who's not? I mean, the the downside here is that for Walmart and Target, they both overestimated. To Susan's point, the hard, mm-hmm. you know, the hard goods in the air fryers because they saw such a leap. You know, everything that Susan was telling us during the pandemic, like every, you know, air fryers are going nuts. They ordered too many. Uh, the ones that are going to win, I think, are just the plain grocery. I mean, Albertsons, they announced their their Q1 earnings and they beat estimates uh, by quite a lot. So they're, they've really, uh, they've pushed their, or raised their full year guidance. You're, you're also going to start to see, it's already happening, more of um, returns are really, really hard on e-tailers, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you'll just see, yeah. no, don't bother to return it. Oh, I get that now. Yeah, I get it from time to time. My favorite though is when I get a picture of, products allegedly delivered to my house that are in front of someone else's house. That's always my favorite is your product has now been delivered. I go, I, I, it, it has been delivered, but I don't live in that, that, that house. 
So you are correct. It has been delivered, just not to me. You got to have good neighbors. Charlie, you just have these problems. Like you can't, your flight yeah. can't get you to the right place. Your package can't get to your door. I, I don't know what's going on with you. I'm pretty sure it's not unique to me. I'm pretty sure it's not unique to me. <laughs> oh, you're not going to let me pin that on you. Okay. Hey, so Kevin, tell us a little about our guest coming up from Hoplark. Sounds like an interesting kind of, uh, how would you describe that business? Our guest is Betsy Frost. She's the chief commercial officer uh, at Hoplark. Um, which I think they describe it as a non-alcoholic brewery. Right. Uh, it's actually here in my backyard in, in Boulder, Colorado. So I think it's really interesting because you've got, you know, the move to seltzer in many different ways as people move away from soda. Right. What I find fascinating about it is, is that when I look at this, at that market, it seems like they're just reassembling soda all over again. Mm-hmm. So they they basically started with... Uh, you know, you've got, you started with seltzer water. You went, they went all the way back to seltzer water, you know, the whole, the whole industry. And now they're slowly starting to add in, Hey, we're adding in botanicals. We're adding in uh, caffeine. And I'm like, are you really starting to recreate soda? <laughs> yes, but in a more healthy or acceptable way, right? It's true. It's acceptable. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's not anything new, right? I mean, I mean, you see that happen all the time, right? Right. When, when, when the next generation of, of innovators come in, oftentimes they will either Im- imitate or they'll realize, okay, well, this is a category that's ready for something fresh and new. And I think, uh, you know, other products that are coming out now, they're, they're definitely, you know, leading with the, with the wellness aspects. So... Charlie and Susan, I am extremely excited to introduce uh, Betsy Frost to all of you. Hey, Betsy. Hello. Betsy is the Chief Commercial Officer at Hoplark, uh, which is a non-alcoholic brewery in uh, Boulder, Colorado. And prior to Hoplark, Betsy served as the president of Dry Soda. And then she spent 15 years at General Mills, which is where I met and worked with Betsy and had lots of great uh, projects with Betsy. So uh, lots of memories there. Uh, there at General Mills, she was running PL and brand strategy for brands from Cheerios to Yoplait. Betsy has her MBA from the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, and she's an alum of Brown University. Betsy. Welcome to Three Squares. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hi, Betsy. I have to start off just by asking, because I introduced you at the beginning there, and I said that Betsy is the chief commercial officer at Hoplark. Can you just kind of start, what is the chief commercial officer? Because that's like a new title within within the food and beverage industry. Yeah, well, um, I run sales and marketing, and it is a newer role. Um, I think it's really important in kind of the earlier stage startups where you don't have a big enough budget to really bring in a CMO. So you've you've tended to see leaders in these smaller companies come from sales and early stage tends to then be missing out on the larger strategic vision of how things work together. And so this new kind of chief commercial officer brings together that growth strategy and the organizations underneath it more holistically to drive um I think both strategy and then the sales and marketing execution. So Betsy, help me and our listeners understand, talk to me about what Hoplark and the hops, non-alcoholic beverages, because I am going to assume it's not non-alcoholic beer. No, it is not. We don't ferment anything. Um, What you have in regular NA beer is you actually go through the full brewing process, and then you use yeast to extract out the alcohol. We just literally brew the hops to get the, the freshest flavor out of it, um, ending up in a product that's zero calories, truly zero ABV, and zero sugar um, within it as well. 
I mean, at the core, um, Hoplark is really, we say, we're working to reawaken consumers' palates to the experience of real ingredients in beverage. So if you just think about the broader food and beverage landscape, like in the last 20 years, food has really focused on real ingredients and getting all the junk out of stuff. But if you think about beverage, it's really still a game of concentrates and commands. Um, and there is an opportunity to bring true ingredient flavor. So um, Dean, our founder, was a home brewer. Um, he was having a beer with his co-founder, Andrew, and they were talking about how that flavor of hops, like why does beer get to have all the fun? It's such a unique ingredient with a really unique flavor profile. And they started m monkeying around literally in their garage to figure out how to unlock hops from beer across different beverage occasions. So we have a brewery uh, in Boulder, Colorado, where we actually brew the hops. Um, so we don't use malt. And then we have a line where we brew um, hops and tea together to get more complexity in the flavor and a different mouthfeel as well. I love the idea of true ingredients and the true flavors coming through. Before you joined us, we were talking about, you know, how beverages have moving away from carbonated soft drinks and kind of pulling some of the things that got uh, a bad rap, some of the ingredients in, in that beverage and how it's come into the seltzer world. And this seems like kind of a next step generation towards that purity or flavor experience? I don't, is that how you think about it? That's totally how we think about it. And we have a, um, like a limited release program. So every month we're doing two limited releases, one in tea and one in sparkling water. We're just releasing a root beer. We had a, um, a basil lime that was like chewing on a piece of basil. You know, the, the dream is to unlock flavor across all real ingredients, not just, you know, not just hops um, and that kind of NA experience. But it is quite remarkable the intensity of the flavor that you can get through this brewing process without any sugar or additives. I'm curious, you know, you've had now two roles and you have two roles in beverages and then you, you've had a role where I really work with you more in food, consumer packaged goods. What's the difference to you? What's the differences that you've noticed in challenges or advantages of, of, of both food or beverage? How do you see the difference? I think it's just a lot harder in beverage. Um, it costs a lot um, to do that bake breakthrough. And so it's a lot harder for smaller brands to, I think, get a true foothold because it is a format that you can add any flavor system, any functionality to. Um, and that makes it highly competitive and the category is super complex. So there are all these subcategories, but they really start to bleed into each other. I mean, the, the similarities are in the approach to the consumer um, and the idea of building brands that have uh, true purpose behind them. And I think at the core, good food and good beverages brands are doing that same thing. But um, I mean, beverage is hard. You know, it's an interesting segue, Betsy. You, you've had the unique opportunity to work both with big CPG and a couple of startups with Dry and, and now where you are. So what do you see as kind of the advantages and disadvantages of both? Because you talked about the passion of, of the startup, but also the resources of the big company. You've experienced both. We've got listeners that work on both sides. How would you describe kind of the pros and cons of, of both environments? Yeah, I mean, my time at General Mills, I feel incredibly grateful for. Um, it was incredible training with lots of resources. So you got to touch and, and see um, 
all sides of the business really develop. So from consumer insights to category management, um, you have an incredibly resourceful and talented sales organization that has relationships with anyone that you need relationships with versus like literally going in and trying to scrap and find the find the buyer that you need to get to and how are you going to reach them and get to them in a small company. Um, and, and I think that there's um, the opportunity to do fun, big thinking marketing type stuff um, because you have the room and the resources to take some bets and to do things differently um, than you actually do in a small brand, oddly, because um, you have more control over a small brand, but you have less money and everything that you do has to be focused to a very specific goal of moving the business. You don't, you don't have as much room to play, if you will. I think the challenges of big CPG come through um, you can, and I think people often do get disconnected from the consumer and the true marketplace. And there are times within that organization where I have found that people start to focus more on maybe their career progression uh, and what success looks like within a, a big organization versus necessarily moving the business forward or what the consumer needs or um, how are we going to bring something, you know, to market that's truly innovative? Some of that stuff gets watered down within a within a bigger company. The, the small side is like, I love the small side. It is scrappy. You get your hands dirty. You play up and down and sideways like you're creating, you know, five-year vision and strategy for these new brands. And then you're ordering business cards and you're taking stuff down to the post office because you know, UPS didn't show up today. And so you really do kind of play across the board um, and you have to be close to the consumer and you have to be close to the market. I mean, it is really all in service of the people that you are that you are serving, if you will. Um, the challenges are, are kind of obvious. There are very few resources. Um, right. The um, amount of time that we spend uh, securing funding uh, is very different. I think the focus on profitability is heightened in a way that people don't necessarily expect, um, but really trying to get to sustainability over time is where you're focused. Oh, great summary. Thank you for that. I, I was enjoyed a startup environment, but certainly understand the challenges of both. So that's, that's a great transition. Before you joined us, we were talking about uh, you know, Walmart's most recent earning call and some of the challenges that, that uh, Big Food is facing with food inflation, particularly fuel inflation. So as you think about the startup world in food and beverage, do you see this as a particular challenging moment or do you see this as an opportunity for, for renaissance and growth? Both. <laughs> it, it, the answer is yes and yes. Um, it is a very challenging environment right now, both on the cost crunch yeah. of um, the cost of doing business is is stifling for small companies. The change has really been, in, in my experience, in the last few months in the investment community and the access to capital. I mean, what the reality is, is scarcity drives creativity. And so what will come out of it for sure will be some new creativity, whether that's in, um, in how people are managing like the full P&L of the business to um, thinking about how to go to market. In fact, I think the way that startups are going to go to market is going to look closer to what 
the market looked like in the early 2000s, where you start small, you go regional, you actually earn your way into the next level of distribution. What we've seen in the last few years is what I would call investor-fueled innovation that may or may not be proven in market that then gets scaled super quickly. And then the question is, um, can that brand stand up under the um, immediate scale that has been given to them? I I think we're going to see less of that, to be honest. And it's going to go back to um, a bit of a slog, but the the proof to grow, um, which is a a different way of going to market. Let's talk a little bit about e-com and direct-to-consumer in in terms of um, your, how you're reaching consumers, like and apologies, I don't know all the ways that you're distributed, but um, is that a way that has allowed you to build scale and get out there? I mean, D2C and beverage in general is terrible. It is very expensive to ship water around the country. And so, you know, as both at Dry and then coming over to Hoplark, the idea of having a robust D2C business within beverage is somewhat unusual. Um, what Hoplark did is when the they had a tap room, and when the tap room closed in 2020, they moved to an uh, to a direct consumer business that has become a huge part of their business. And I think it's for us as we look at it within our mix of kind of omni-channel, people actually find us in store. A third of the people coming through D2C actually saw us in retail first, come onto the site to learn more and end up signing up for a subscription where they have access to these limited release programs um, and can do flavor exploratory on their own. And so for us, D2C has really become, yes, we do like advertise through it. It's a way to like get a return on your digital advertising in a way that you can't necessarily translate into retail, but it is a place for us to grow and interact with super fans, if you will. And so my goal. Yeah. It's experiential, the engagement, right? Totally. And our goal is to, you know, make that omni-channel experience even richer as we move forward into the next year. We have sparkling water that is in the sparkling water set at Whole Foods and online. And then we have what we call our zero zero product, which is distributed through beer distributors into NA beer sets. So we have created this um, this multi-touch um distribution environment where consumers can see us in three different places, buy us in four different places, but it increases that brand touch where people may be looking. The idea that you just said there that you're also through beer distributors, that feels like a a, a channel that other, um, you know, sparkling waters usually don't get. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's totally right. And we, I mean, we designed the Zero Zero product to sit in the NA beer set. I call it our homage to beer Um, so it's like an, it's like an IPA, it's like a West coast IPA, but it has the fresh hop experience without the malt. But that is where a number of folks who are now playing around in the NA beer set go first is to the, those sets in their, in their liquor store. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a whole distribution system that you have to work out and probably has some advantages in terms of being able to regionalize it or find specific distributors that'll be more helpful or supportive than others, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, the beer distribution network is uh, complex because as you mentioned, the, the laws are very different from state to state. Right. But it, the beauty of that is it's become very incremental within the stores and within the sets. 
um, you know, using beer distributors enables us to get case stacks in a different way and incent display. Um, the speed to which you can build distribution is also quite interesting because while the re- the major retailers are still the largest players, even within beer, there are literally tens of thousands of independents that if you put feet on the street, you can just literally walk from one to another and sell in distribution. And so yep. it allows you to, to definitely create discovery in a concentrated way in these markets. So if you don't, it, it, nothing confidential, but is what's what's next for Hoplark? Is there anything exciting that we should be looking for? I mean, I'm just kind of curious because there seems, now that you speak about it, there seems to be so many potential avenues to go forward with. Yeah, um, there are some very exciting things coming forward. Um, I can't announce it yet, but um, <laughs> we will we will be announcing it quite soon. I'll tease it that we will be um, creating a muscle to innovate in much more expansive ways around this idea of real ingredients, mm. um, and you know have we have the ability of D to C to be able to test and learn. Um, all of our flavors before they launch in retail goes go through D to C first. So it's coming. <laughs> Just wait. September. Very it's cool. It's gonna be very right. exciting. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, we'll have to have you back. I'd love to come back. Yeah. Thank you, Betsy. It was great meeting you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That's amazing. I think Hoplark is really onto something. It'll be fascinating to see how they continue to progress. Um, you know, her insight on the category on the advantages and disadvantages of CPG versus startups. Uh, really great insight. And I think it's, it's it's really interesting, Kevin, as you were talking about earlier, just to see the evolution of the entire yeah. category. I mean, she's she's such a bright marketer, such a smart marketer that, I mean, you can just definitely see the wheels turning about different ways in. This the idea of using direct-to-consumer as more of a discovery, especially with the cost of, uh, of, of shipping water, as she said, around the world, around the country. That's, I think, really smart is that she's taking that disadvantage in a way and just making an advantage and saying, these are our hardcore consumers and we're just going to use that knowledge in a different way. Yeah. yeah, and I love what they're doing because it does feel like kind of the next iteration, like something that really is different in the beverage space, a space that's just continually innovating and coming out with new things. The things that she talked about in terms of, you know, going to market and the business differences between a beverage and a food company, I see that all the time in my clients. And you see kind of that scrappiness. I just loved having her as a guest, Kevin. Thanks for bringing her on. Yeah, I know. All right. On today's episode, uh, now, are we doing heavy drama or Mr. T today? What's what's the preference? Should we do? I think Mr. T is fine. I don't know if it needs needs the heavy drama. I love Mr. T. Since we just got done talking about beverages with caffeine on today's episode of What the Food, <laughs> Kevin <laughs> will provide a little more insight. So, Kevin, what's today's What the Food? That was almost, that was frightening. I, I, I took a step back. There. It was frightening. Uh. <laughs> I, we need to get you some jewelry. <laughs> We, we need, you need the bling when you do what the food, Charlie. I need like medallions yeah, exactly. on here. Some gold. There you go. All right. Do you know all that right. Mr. T actually, the all, he was a bouncer at a club and that all that jewelry started, he used to wear the jewelry that was left in the club. Oh. That's amazing. Isn't is that, that interesting? That is amazing. That's fascinating. That's what I've heard. He seems like such a nice man. You have more interesting backstories than any human being on the planet. Any human well, being. Well, speaking of trivia, 
Speaking of trivia, yes, yes. Uh, and interesting things, I thought in in uh, in light of today's guest, I thought I'd do something uh, about water. Uh, and I'm okay. this is really interesting. So a, a few years back, I had a friend of mine who was on a low sodium diet, and he came to me and he said, "Do you know that tap water has salt in it?" Hmm. And I said, "Hmm. Well, I would assume that it's just natural salt." The more I dug, the more I realized something extremely interesting. So yes. Tap water has salt in it. In fact, the government, the municipalities, they put about 20 milligrams of salt or sodium per liter of water. And why do you think they do that? To prevent the pipes from uh, corroding. No. Susan, what's your, what's your guess? Is it some sort of preservative? No, it's not preservatives. It is because if you have less than that, the uh, water tastes flat. People don't like it. Now, what's even more interesting oh, I is it was because it pulled the minerals out of the pipes. Then it doesn't. Huh? No, it's why it's why it tastes flat. It tastes flat with you have less sodium than that because it's less sodium than your saliva. Isn't that interesting? So oh. your so when you develop product for consumers, you have to be above the sodium and flavors in general uh, than what's in your mouth because. We just don't taste ourselves. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, right. That's, that's the answer. You don't taste yourself. And so you have to, any food that comes into your mouth has to kind of be above, in a sense, what your saliva tastes like. Now, what's really interesting about that is your body does that in many different ways. So you don't, your lungs actually have a smell, but you don't smell it because mm-hmm. it's just you. Or the one I always like to tell folks is, uh, if you close your left or right eye, you'll notice that all of a sudden your nose appears. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. If you, close your <laughs> left, yeah. you see it? Okay. <laughs> I, wish, I wish people could see you doing this right now. <laughs> when you open both of your eyes, you don't see it. Why do you not see it? It's there. Your brain actually gets rid of it. It actually just gets rid of it. It's the same thing with the saliva in your mouth. And so all the food you eat has to get away. Yeah, so we get taste taste blind and nose blind if something is there hmm. perpetually. Yes. It's kind of our it's kind of our existence. So so it's inter- I think it's interesting. I think that's interesting. If you really want to ever taste your own saliva, which sounds really gross, you can rinse your mouth with distilled water. And then when your saliva comes back, you can taste it. So little fun, fun thing to do for folks. So your idea of fun is yeah. interesting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <Good point. laughs> Well, Kevin, thanks for that on today's episode of What the Food. We'll kind of mix it in there, make it a little softer. If you would like to spend a little time with the Three Squares, you can become a sponsor of the program. That's right. Just email us at three squares mail. That's the numeral three squares mail at gmail.com. Not only will you be uh, representing your company, your organization in front of all of our fantastic food system listeners, but you'll have a 90-minute consultation session with the Three Squares personally. Let us know at threesquaresmail at gmail.com. I can come and talk about how people can't taste anything. Mm-hmm. Be good. Three Squares Dishing on the Food Industry is created by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beezing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And of course, most of all, thanks to you for listening. If you like the show, please give us a rating and review. Follow for future episodes, share it with your friends, and you can follow us on LinkedIn. We're at Three Squares Podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll set the table again soon on Three Squares. 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.